The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Everybody, welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. Coronavirus cases around the world passed the 10 million mark as infections in America's southern states hit fresh record highs, prompting Florida to close its beaches and California to shut its bars. Asian stocks trade lower on the infection numbers despite signs of green shoots in China, where industrial profits rebound in May, rising 6% on the year. The advertising boycott enters the big league with the corporate giants such as Starbucks, Coca-Cola and Unilever joining a slew of names to withdraw or suspend their ads from Facebook amid a backlash over hate speech control. And Chesapeake Energy files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy as the group that helped lead the American shale revolution collapses under the weight of its debts amid the oil price crash. Thanks for tuning in to CNBC this morning for your Monday update. Let's talk about the latest on the virus. The outbreak has now killed more than 500,000 people around the world, while the number of confirmed infections has topped 10 million. That according to data compiled by Johns Hopkins University. The U.S. accounts for over 20 percent of all recorded deaths. That is more than any other country in the world. More than a dozen states have partially reversed their plans to reopen. Texas has seen one of the largest surges, with cases there hitting nearly 150,000. In Arizona, ICU beds are at 87% capacity, while in Florida there are more than six new cases per minute, with officials saying some beaches will be closed now for the 4th of July holiday. The California governor, Gavin Newsom, has ordered bars to close immediately in seven counties, including Los Angeles, amid an increase in coronavirus cases in the state. This comes just two days after officials in Florida and Texas took similar action. Meanwhile, during a visit to Dallas, the vice president, Mike Pence, wore a face mask covering and urged others to do the same. If your local officials in consultation with the state uh, are directing you to wear a mask, we encourage uh, everyone to wear a mask uh, in the affected areas. And where you can't maintain social distancing, uh, wearing a mask is just a good idea. Uh, and it will, we know from experience, uh, will slow the spread of the coronavirus. Well, speaking to NBC's Meet the Press, Health Secretary Alex Azza issued this grim warning. The window is closing. We have to act, and people as individuals have to act responsibly. We need to social distance. We need to wear our face coverings if we're in settings where we can't social distance, particularly in these hot zones. And speaking to CNBC, the White House health advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, called the recent surge in new cases a, quote, serious situation, adding that the spike in infections is not just down to increased testing. The people who've been pent up in those places, they're looking at it as an all or none phenomenon. Either we're locked down or let's storm the bars, go to the beach, no masks. 
That's what the problem is. If you're going to open up, you've got to do it in a stepwise, prudent fashion. If you go from lockdown to complete caution to the wind, you're going to get into trouble. So let's have a quick look at how we closed out business on Friday then. And um, it's clear that we had one of those big reversal days on Friday where increasingly the market is taking note of the impact of the infections and is reassessing the valuations that the market has uh, got to over recent weeks here. And not even the NASDAQ, which is the only one of these three indices effectively to have closed out last week in positive uh, gain territory. Um, I think let's have a look at the numbers here. The Nasdaq was uh, was uh, what are we now um, down 1.9 percent week to date. I apologise, but up 2.8 percent month to date. But as you look at these three indices, you can see clearly we had a very weak close to the end of the trading session last week. And as I look at the numbers, uh, the Dow off 3.3 percent uh, for the week as a whole. The S and P down 2.8 for the uh, week to date. Um, And even on the uh, month, both the S&P and the NASDAQ down over 1%. So that just gives you a sense of how the tone of the market and the risk on trade has ultimately shifted here. Let's have a look at the uh, dollar and the way the dollar is faring here. Coming up uh, later on in the program, we've got a whole slew of Uh, both market strategists and economists who are going to talk to us about what the drivers potentially of growth could be. What could keep the market engaged as we go into the indifferent days of summer? And the dollar is one of those big issues. If we get weaker dollar, maybe that tempts out the risk on trade. If we get stronger dollar, that starts to snub out some of the interest in emerging or oil or other key sectors. So let's just show you. Sterling, as you can see, we're a little off the 124 pace at the moment. The euro just making a little bit of a comeback here and the dollar just fighting it out uh, with the yen at this stage, with the market just perplexed a little as to which way it wants to go on this. Let's um, just show you the gold story. Uh, Let's pop gold up for you. Um, You can see that gold has enjoyed a bit of a renewed bid on the back of uh, that close uh, on equity markets on Friday. As uh, we come into the trading week, the Asian markets just showing us that there's been little real improvement in sentiment. And as we come into the trading week here, there is a glass half empty attitude about the direction of travel for economies here. And I just wanted to flag something else up. Um, I don't have a bond wall for you, but I think my phrase of the morning is strange bedfellows. Um, And there are so many stories that are floating around at the moment that are putting um, things together that look like they don't belong. And we're going to talk a bit later about this German uh, judge over the weekend who um, is trying to help resolve this issue of the ECB's bond buying in the German Constitutional Court, pointing the finger now at the Bundesbank and saying, you are the ones who are going to have to make the decision here. We take this out of the hands of the politicians and the Constitutional Court. And the other um, story that really struck me was the fact that the Federal Reserve, as we look at the corporate paper that the Fed has been buying here. $428 million worth of corporate bonds bought last week, I think. And that included 
debt of big oil companies and debt of big tobacco. Philip Morris was uh, among the corporate paper that was picked up by the Federal Reserve here. What about that green, clean, healthy agenda that our biggers and betters are, are supposed to be encouraging at the moment? Why are you lowering the borrowing costs for big oil and for the tobacco companies? I think that's a question that increasingly uh, some in our community will be asking the Federal Reserve questions about. But just keep that in mind because we may come back to that strange and unusual bedfellows this morning. China's industrial profits rose for the first time in six months in May. The 6% increase marks the largest gain since March last year as the world's second largest economy continues to show signs of recovery since the easing of the lockdowns. Large-scale sectors such as oil refining have led the rebound. But China's National Statistics Bureau has warned that the sustainability of profit recovery is not certain as the country may still face headwinds from weak market demand. Well, the IMF's managing director, Kristalina Gorgieva, has told CNBC in an exclusive interview that any economic or market forecasts would be difficult to make in the absence of a major breakthrough on the virus front. The recovery uh, is uh, starting on the basis of uh, reopening while the pandemic is still with us. Uh, and while it is still with us, there has to be an expectation of uh, spikes. And actually, we see that happening in many places. And then there has to be an adjustment uh, in uh, economic response to these uh, spikes. Uh, so we cannot project anything but uneven and partial recovery until such time when there can be a radical ending of the pandemic, um, uh, and that time is not yet. Kristalina Gorgieva from the IMF talking to CNBC. Paul Gambles joins us, co-founder of MBMG Group. He's with us now from Asia. Good morning, Paul. And let, let me just start by asking you about the value of that Chinese data, because um, those who will be bullish, the markets will seize upon those numbers from China on the industrial profits and say, there, there, you see, you see, there is some recovery taking place in China. They are the leading edge of what will ultimately come for Western economies. What, what's your view on how we analyze these numbers? Uh, I, good morning, Jeff. Morning, Steve. I, I think uh, the problem is data is very much in the, uh, in the, the, the eye of the beholder at the moment. Um, you know, we, the, the big picture is that we've got this, this tug of war between you know gravitational forces that are trying to drag markets down because of how bad the economic data really is, and we've got the sort of rocket fuel of stimuli that, that's trying to push it higher, and we've, we've we've had that sort of tug of war going on since since March. Um, the stimuli tends to get you know weaker over time. The effect of that gets weaker over time, uh, and you know one of the things in in uh, May that was able to support it was that uh, people saw data, particularly coming out of the states, the employment data, uh, the retail data, and that as being good. But if you, if you sort of take a step back and you look at it in perspective, uh, the kind of percentage bounces that we're seeing are actually pretty meaningless. When you go down so far, 
you have to expect some kind of a bounce. And, you know, record numbers, 6% bounces, they're actually pretty insignificant in the scale of things. We need, you know, much more sustained, uh, much bigger bounces to get us anywhere back towards trajectory. And at the moment, the tug of war is sort of being resolved to, to the downside. People just, you know, they're no longer believing that, uh, that stimulus is going to do its job and it's going to push us back up towards high enough levels. Paul, there was a there was a mere culpa in your notes here. You say, uh, based on the 2020 visions and beyond, um, a plan that you had for the year here. Uh, you say our, our our original case underestimated the impact of fiscal stimuli so far. Um, could you just focus on that for us for a moment here? Because as we now talk about some of the m- m- momentum coming out of the risk on trade here, there will inevitably be those who look to the Fed yet again and other central banks to prever- provide further support for the market. Is it coming? Oh, it's definitely coming. Absolutely. Um so, as you say, we, we sort of expected these scenarios, but actually we, we, uh, we, we thought that uh, the stimulus would have a greater effect than it's had. We thought it had a longer lasting effect than it had. We didn't anticipate COVID, so maybe that's the reason why it hasn't had the effect that it's had. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Fed is basically a man with a hammer looking for, looking for nails everywhere. We're, we're going to get much, much more of the same. They've expanded the scope of what they do. They've expanded the scale of what we do. But but uh, as I said in the, in the note, you know, this is this is 1974. It's not stagflation. It's not oil crisis. It's Bartman Turner overdrive. You, you ain't seen nothing yet. Um, we're, we're going to start to see, you know, a stimulus on a scale that is going to be shock and awe because it's going to have to be shock and awe to have any kind of effect. So uh, where in the past we, you know, we used to talk about 100 billion. Then we start we started talking about trillions. We don't think it's that long before we start talking about programs that are tens of trillions of dollars. Good morning, Paul. So the question is, and you were sweepingly as ever said, stimulus isn't working. Well, I'm asking you specifically, is it not working for the economy or is it not working for markets? Because as people have keep trying to tell me, uh, those two are very different things. I.e., stimulus can affect the markets in a different way from the underlying economy. Totally. And that's absolutely right. And, you know, what we're saying is um, this stimulus doesn't really have any significant lasting positive impact for the economy. Therefore, you've still got that same tug of war. You still end up with that same gravitational pull. So so markets got quite excited about the scale of stimulus that we've seen. But, you know, that effect is wearing off because it's not feeding through to the economy. So ultimately, these things do end up reconnecting. But, you know, what, what we foresee is a situation where markets start to get back, dragged back down, and we've seen that already. And I think you know one one key point. I was listening to Jeff's data at the at the start there. Um, yes, we're sort of three percent off week to date, and a couple of percent off month to date. But if you look at the high in the Dow, for instance, about three weeks ago, we were we're ten percent below that. You look at the broader U.S. stocks, we're more than ten percent down from that. So. The, the effect on the markets is starting to wear off because the effect on the economies has never really happened. That's why we think there's going to be way more stimulus coming through. And again, the markets will react. They'll react to that immediately. They'll see it. Um, but each time, it seems that the, uh, the reaction is more muted and it doesn't seem to last as long. That's the one thing that surprised us about this year. We kind of figured this trajectory, but we thought that the, uh, the impact would last a lot longer and it would be a lot greater based on the size of the stimulus we've seen. So, you know, to a man with a hammer, he just goes and gets a bigger hammer. 
couldn't agree with you more, actually, about the broader markets. I think we're being blinded by the glitzy lights of certain technology names and what the Nasdaq's done. But I'll, we'll save that conversation for a little bit later on as well. But I fear our conversation between the three of us so far has been very 2D. I, we've talked about stimulus and reaction on markets and economy. Actually, I think we need to make it 3D. And the other thing that we haven't said, of course, which was what we did say uh, earlier on where Jeff and I were doing our reads, is the fact that the pandemic has reared up aggressively in certain parts of the United States as well. So we can't move ahead with the stimulus market economic argument until the pandemic is back under control as well. And that is the point, isn't it? We can't have the US economy rallying if the consumer is in lockdown because the consumer is 70% of that economy. So it's not just about stimulus and markets and economy. It's back to the pandemic again, isn't it? To, to, to an extent, absolutely. But you know what you have to remember is that the longer that lockdown goes on, the longer that uh, consumers are impaired, the more job losses we see, then ultimately that starts to create a whole bunch of feedback loops. That's the really dangerous thing now. We're into the scenario of feedback loops because of the lockdown. And that's why the, the stimulus is going to have to become you know, exponentially greater all the time to keep having an effect because this, this disconnection, this lack of ability to feed through to, to consumption, uh, to, uh, to, to employment, to business investment, the inability of, of stimulus to feed through to that, largely because of the, the lockdown, but also partly because a lot of the things the Fed are doing and the Treasury are doing isn't really the right kind of way to get money into uh, you know the hands of, of real businesses. Yes, we've seen we've seen borrowing programs, but you know what? The bond buying programs have been a lot more effective on, on in, in terms of implementation than the direct borrowing programs. So it's it's um, it's it's you know partly pushing on the string, but also partly because you know the Fed are pushing and the Treasury are still pushing on the wrong strings as well. So that's why we think the scale of it will just keep getting larger and larger because the effectiveness partly because of lockdown, partly because of the way it's being done. The effectiveness is just reducing all the time. So that raises some very difficult questions, Paul, then, about what asset classes you want to own going into the second half of the year here. Because uh, as you all have read, there are some very notable academics and economists running around saying that we've seen the low now on the 10-year yield, that the Fed is just going to manage these curves and we're, we're going to have uh, stability. But ultimately... That raises questions about how much more money you put in fixed income, how much more money you put into equities, or whether you just uh, decide to own cash and gold at this stage. What advice are you giving to your clients? You're absolutely right. This is a really difficult time of the year. So far, this year has actually been really easy. If you're an asset allocator, this has been one of the best years for, for making money through asset allocation because, um, you know, the, uh, the, the relative value of anti-fragile assets was great going into the start of this year. Gold was cheap, long-term treasuries were cheap. Um, you have to remember, if you're going to use treasuries for protection now, you've really got to get very long on the curve. We're, we're using 25-year treasury strips rather than treasuries themselves because they actually give uh, much better protection. They also have, obviously, more uh, potential downside as well if everything is fantastic. Um, and just a few weeks ago, they were one of the bargains of the, the year so far because, uh, you know, when rates, when long-term rates were heading high, that was a great time to be buying. And at that time, we were buying. Right now, um, it's, it's very difficult to see anything that represents great value. I think that, uh, you know, long-term treasuries, I think gold, they will have a part to play in protecting. And actually, June has been, you know, one of our best months of the year so far. Uh, but then March and April and May were very good too. But it's starting to get a lot, lot harder because anti-fragile asset prices are getting that much higher. So 
um, what that means is you probably do want to be reducing your equity risk, your, your beta, and you do probably want to be holding you know, a little bit more cash right now because the cost of protection is so much higher. Paul, it's been a pleasure as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we'll see you again soon. Paul Gambles, co-founder of the MBMG Group. Steve. Yeah, Jeff, I just wanted to reiterate the point about what Paul was saying there about broader markets have not had a magnificent rally. I keep hearing how we've come off the lows, but that's like looking at half the V, of course, because we came down aggressively and then have bounced a certain point. So I've done a bit of work over the weekend looking at broader markets. And as you and Karen and everyone knows over the last few weeks, I've gone specifically about certain sectors like energy, which is currently down 42%. No sign of a bull market there. Financials down 27%. But when you look at various indices as well, and some absolutely key barometers of broader US economic strength. You see massive declines. The Russell 2K, for instance, is down 20%, give or take the decimals, from its record high. Now think about that. Russell 2K is in bear market territory. In fact, since the inauguration in the United States in 2017, it's up only 2.5%. Not much of a bull market there, is there? And then when you look at the transports, which is something, Jeff, you've looked at a very long time as well, it's down 4% since the inauguration. So just think about that. The transports, one of the key barometers of the US economy, down 4% over the last three years. And it's actually 22.5% off its most recent high. And then you look at individual stocks as well. And I just actually, Jeff, I know you're all romantic. Uh, GE, GE, our former owner of our channel. I just had it on my computer, so I just banged this one up. 13 bucks it was trading on Valentine's Day. Now trading exactly half of that at 6.48. No sign of a bull market there. And then I looked at individual countries as well. And I'll just finish on this one. The big markets across the board are down apart from, as we know, uh, likes of the Nasdaq. So let's go through some of the worst performers. So we've got some great data here. From the most recent intraday high, the Greek market is still 32% lower. The Spanish market, 29% lower. The Italian market, down 25%. The Russian market, down 25%. The Dow Transports, we talked about that one as well. The Bov Espar over in Brazil, bear market, down 21%. I could go on. The FTSE, the Portugal markets, the CAC, the Russell 2K we mentioned, the Eurostock 600, down 17.4%. There are a lot of markets which, yes, have bounced off those April lows as well uh, and the March lows that we saw in a lot of these indices. But there are an awful lot of markets out there in breadth and depth in terms of sectors, in terms of individual subsectors, uh, sub-indices, which are in bear market territory. Let's not just get dazzled by the bright lights of technology and the Nasdaq, which undoubtedly have had an extraordinary rally. And perhaps that's more about structural changes in the economy, Jeff. Terrific, Steve. We'll see you a little bit later on. We've got to squeeze in a break. We'll come back. We will have more uh, reality, a cold shower on the markets for you in just a while. Fraud fallout. Germany is set to overhaul how it regulates accountancy firms as more details emerge of the failures behind the Wirecard scandal. And if you want to uh, catch up on how the markets are reacting to COVID-19 and the economic data and all the other things that are driving sentiment, do have a listen in to the Squawk Box Daily Podcast. I can recommend it. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. 
available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. The German government will terminate its contract with the country's audit watchdog in the wake of the Wirecard scandal. According to various media reports, the auditing regulators are accused of failing to adequately oversee the payment company's accounts after nearly €2 billion went missing. Speaking to CNBC, the governor of the Philippine Central Bank said authorities there are working with their German counterparts to investigate the banks where Wirecard initially claimed the missing money was held. They, they, uh, they have uh, talked to our banks, the German counterpart, to, to BPI, I understand, and uh, we, uh, the Bank of Philippine Islands on in turn, has actually reported to us uh, what the nature of the conversation is. And, and again, I repeat, we are willing to, to work with uh, any international uh, organization who would like to, to look into this mess. Uh, well, let's bring Annetta into the conversation. She's been tracking this story from uh, day one. Uh, and Annetta, let's just pick up on these various threads then. So the German government is, what, trying to now blame the audit authority for the failure here rather than BaFin or any other organisation? Well, actually, they're blaming the structure, how financial regulation uh, is actually structured in Germany, and they want to change it. So they address it um, actively, and they are seeing or admitting that how the structure currently works, it's apparently not working at all and has many loopholes for um, yeah, people who might actually be like the guys from Wirecard using the system. So because what currently is the, ca- is the case that there's a, a body which is called Financial uh, Regulation Enforcement Panel, it's a private body who's um, in charge of overseeing accounting um, of all listed companies. So it doesn't sit with BaFin. So if BaFin has suspicion that perhaps a company has done uh, or is, is manipulating its balance sheet, it has to give the case to that specific body and then their people have to look into it. Um, there is a story in financial, in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Sonntagszeitung that BaFin was actually alerted to potential ba- uh, balance sheet manipulation at Wirecard as early as early 2019 and brought the case to that specific body, but then only one person was working on it and it never yielded any results. So the question is, why didn't Buffin push more? And why did that body, that financial regulation enforcement panel, who is in charge of overseeing and counting rules in Germany, did not do more given uh, the suspicion? So today there will be a meeting of the Buffin board um, and they are going most likely to discuss a lot, also potentially the future of the current president of BaFin, Felix Hufe, because he clearly was the man in charge during that all that time. But he was admitting various times publicly that this system has to change and that um, BaFin should also have control over, about fintechs. And that's another point which the deputy finance minister, Jörg Cookies, was raising in an interview that this uh, whole regulation hemisphere, so meaning which 
which um, companies are actually qualifying as financial companies also has to change, including fintechs. So you see many moving parts, but there is movement here in Germany on that issue. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.